Well, let me add my welcome to guys. Uh, it is great to see everyone here on a cold, dark evening as we are looking at Mark together. Uh, why don't I start our time together by praying? Our time looking at this by praying. Father in heaven, um, we are ignorant and foolish, and yet in your mercy you speak to us in your word. Um, please help us to listen to you. Uh, unstop our deaf ears, our blind eyes, and melt our hearts of stone, that we might hear you speaking to us now in these scriptures. Uh, please keep me faithful, please keep our hearts especially mine, humble, and help us to listen and change the way you would have us do so. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, um, I'm going to start by reading Mark chapter 14 from verse 53. It's on page 1021 in the Bibles you were given on the way in, or you got on the way in. So why don't you grab that? Mark chapter 14, we're going to start at verse 53. And we're going to go to Mark 15, verse 15. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another, not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, Jesus said, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about he said, and went out into the entrance. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing round them, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. 
he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the cock crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the cock crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to replace Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Well, I wonder if any of us this week um, have come out with that phrase, it's not fair, or had it in their household. Uh, With those of us in the UK and Europe almost united politically around something, that being the US presidential election, Um, there were more than a few cries of it's not fair being bandied around. Perhaps we see it's a travesty of justice that um, someone won who seemed to have such a negative campaign. Some have said that. Or perhaps we think, as many on Twitter and Facebook seem to, um, that it's just impossible for a woman to get elected to the highest office in America. It's not fair, the cry goes out. Well, what about fair trade? The whole movement which is trying to give a fairer payment for uh, the growers in poorer third world countries to make sure they're paid a better share of the price of the coffee we buy in the shops or the chocolate we buy in our sweets. A whole movement based on this desire for fairness. And of course the reality um, is that the world around us isn't fair. Uh, Parents everywhere have this challenge, don't they? The child says, it's not fair, to which the parents respond, well, the world's not fair. We know it's not fair, but there's still something in us, isn't there? It offends us. It offends something about our nature. We want the world to be fair. We innately prefer it when uh, the baddies get their just desserts and the self-sacrificial heroes win the day. Um, We want the world to be fair, but often what we mean is we want it to be better for us, more fair for us, not that we really want it to be fair. But we are going to explore this topic of fairness today as we think about this passage from Mark, 
and we're going to look at the issue, do we really want fairness once we understand what it should look like? Do we know what we're asking for when we desire that? See, we're in the middle of a series on Mark, so if you're joining us for the first time, I apologise slightly. There's lots of other talks that have gone before. Um, you are welcome to listen to them on uh, the web. Um, Ray, our minister, who is away uh, preaching at a conference this, this Sunday and also next, um, has preached on those. There's some really helpful things to think about in terms of what is Mark's gospel all about? What's Mark saying about Jesus, and about what Jesus came to do? Well worth listening to those. Um, but we're now getting um, to the point where it's near the end of Mark's gospel. Um, the climax is coming. Jesus' death is coming. And Mark has tried to make absolutely sure, um, for those who haven't seen it, that we are absolutely 100% sure that this death is part of God's special plan for Jesus. Um, yes, Jesus is God's Messiah. Mark's very clear. Yes, he is, or to use the Greek term, the Christ, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. But he is a Messiah who must die, who has come to die. But let me read, and we had it briefly referred to earlier, from Mark 10. Um, we're going to read a little bit of a quote from that. This is what Jesus was saying. So it starts in 1032. They were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those of, who were following were afraid. And again, he, that's Jesus, took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. And then a little later on, he says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus must die. He must die as a ransom, a price payment to free the enslaved. Now, um, we could see this, Jesus' death, at this point in Mark, as being a horrific accident. You know, that kind of classic, a tragic life cut short um, in his prime and disaster strikes. I don't think we can do that and read Mark faithfully. Mark doesn't want us to see it that way. We must see this as part of God's plan. And let's look to do that at the earlier part of chapter 14. So if you go back with me to page 1020, um, we are going to see what Jesus says here from verse 27. 27 to verse 31. Jesus um, is predicting uh, his death and Peter's denial. He says, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I won't, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the cock crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Jesus knows he must die. He shows his disciples that all along God has warned his people that his Messiah would have to die. 
Now, this quote he's got here in this bit, this is from Zechariah, prophet, 500 years before Jesus was around, Zechariah was saying this and reminds that the shepherd, that is Jesus, always had to be struck and the sheep would then scatter. This was all part of God's plan. Jesus didn't look forward to it, we know that, but he knew that if he was going to be that ransom, he, the shepherd, would need to be struck. Well, let's turn properly to look at tonight's passage, back to the trials and trial of Jesus. And really, it's three scenes. It's like a sort of movie flitting between the three scenes. Um, as we see it, we've got, we've got the trial of Jesus before the religious leaders, before the leaders of God's historic people, people who condemn him. Then we'll see the trial of Peter, that he faces his own challenges in the courtyard where he condemns himself. And finally, we will see the Gentiles join uh, the Jewish people in wrongly condemning this innocent king, Jesus. But all three trials work together. We hold them together and they open out the wonderful counsel of God. We get a picture of the shepherd being struck so that the sheep may escape the condemnation they deserve. But let's look at them in turn. So the first one, so scene one or point one, if you like, the innocent king is condemned. He is worthy of death. The innocent king is condemned. He is worthy of death. Jesus obviously isn't guilty. Mark goes to every length to see that we get it. This trial is a sham. We, we all know what injustice looks like um, when we see it. It outrages us. Something in us is completely outraged when we see judges making a decision that we know to be wrong. Here, um, it's just, it's frankly embarrassing. You know, the high priests and the other religious leaders, these are, the, these are meant to be the good guys, right? These are the guys who are the moral leaders of the nation. And, and they're itching. They're itching to put Jesus to death. The testimony gathered is false. It's repeatedly false. The lying witnesses never agree. It, this, is the this is like the combined might of both houses of parliament standing there desperate to put Jesus to death. But for all their desire to see Jesus killed, they fail, don't they? They fail to make their case even when the high priest is trying to provoke Jesus. Even then, does Jesus remain silent and doesn't give an answer? And just when the prosecution has failed, they've not managed to gather the evidence, Jesus is not self-convinced himself, um, someone steps in to save the high priest bacon. Who is it? Jesus. Just as he is on the verge of being freed, he speaks up to ensure that the verdict goes the way his father had always planned it. So we say, look at verse 61. The high priest throws in that slightly desperate, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Like Jesus could just have kept quiet, didn't have to say a thing. But no, he speaks up so that his father's plan would come to fruition. God has planned for Jesus' condemnation here. Exactly as Isaiah 53 had said, by oppression and judgment, he was to be taken away. 
And Jesus makes sure that his condemnation is for very precise reasons. Jesus speaks to make sure it's all about his identity as God's Messiah, and it's all about what he will come to do. It's not a blunder. It's not, I don't know, have you ever seen that film, um, A Few Good Men? It's sort of a bit of a classic now. It's quite old-fashioned. But in it, we have a sort of young Tom Cruise playing a lawyer who is cross-examining a very grouchy, impressively grouchy, Jack Nicholson uh, as a senior military figure. And he's trying to provoke Jack Nicholson, who's on the stand, time after time trying to provoke him into losing his temper. And eventually he does. And you get that marvellous sort of, you can't handle the truth, which has sort of you know, assumed legendary status since then. Um, it's not like that. Jesus is very careful in what he says. He didn't have to say a thing. This isn't a panicked response. Jesus says this, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And to do that, he is quoting Psalm 110 and Daniel 7 passages from the scriptures that Jesus is deliberately ascribing to himself. He's adding fuel to the fire to make sure that they convict him for what he wants to be convicted for. And of course, you get this response, don't you? The high priest finally gets the break he needs, and he poses the question with a dramatic rending of his clothes, saying, you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think, he says? Now, Often in Mark, Mark uses irony. He uses irony to pose questions to us, to make us think. And we have that here. What should we think? What do we think of Jesus? It's a question we all have to answer. As the chips go down, there are only two choices for someone who would do this in verse 63. Someone who says, I'm the son of man, and I'll be sitting at the right hand of the mighty one, coming on the clouds of heaven with judgment in my grip, and God's sovereign rule eternally mine. It is a major claim. It is not an accidental claim to God that got confused. It is clear. And we have to ask this question of ourselves. Will we side with the priests, the high priests, and see Jesus as a great pretender? Or will we side with Jesus and see him as he truly is, as God's son? the divine Messiah, this one with God's authority to judge and to rule. Well, the religious leaders and the uh, secular leaders cry together with that wonderful irony and say they condemn him as worthy of death, don't they? And then begins the mockery and the beatings. They mock his supernatural gifts that he's demonstrated, his spiritual powers, his divine powers. And they complete their descent into savagery, don't they? These supposed leaders and shepherds of God's people, murderers, false judges, liars, those connive in false testimony. It's pretty abysmal, really. This final indignity, what is it doing? It's meant to show us how can we side with people who would treat someone like that, who would act like that. No, Mark wants us to hear the truth of the words of who Jesus is. Um, Because as God's Messiah, he alone is, as the accusers say, worthy to die. He is worthy to be the figure 
from Isaiah 53, this figure, this suffering servant who will come as the ransom for many. Let's move on to point two. Uh, Guilty Peter should be condemned, but goes free. Guilty Peter should be condemned, but goes free. Well, we've got this second little trial scene, haven't we? And this time it's Peter's close friend and his overzealous lead disciple, Peter. Peter, who, as we just read just now, was a few hours earlier, was boldly claiming that even if all fall away, I will not. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Bold words. Well, what happens? Bold as brass, he sneaks right into the proverbial lion's den. He's warming his hands at the braziers of his um, fiercest enemies, or the guards of his enemies. Now, it's almost kind of tradition here to hold Peter up to ridicule, but really, I think Peter is actually being quite brave. You know, today's Remembrance Sunday, and I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you can go to the Imperial War Museum, um, there's got a gallery pretty much at the top of the whole building full of medals, you know, the most um, prestigious medals you can be awarded either militarily or also for civilians. Um, And the stories that they have written there are quite extraordinary. If you haven't done it, I would urge you to do it. It's a fascinating experience to see what some of these um, men and women from the past have gone through and done. And of course, you've got the Victoria Cross, haven't you, which is the ultimate um, award for bravery in the face of enemy action um, to the armed forces very inspiring. Uh, Peter here is no slouch, unarmed on his own, right into the lion's den, into the enemy's camp. Um, And ultimately, it's his accent that gives him away. Now, my lovely wife spent lots of time growing up in the Midlands. My children have spent lots of time growing up in southeast London we end up with interesting discussions on accents. Is it a bath or a bath? Do we mow the grass or the grass? Um, Of course, the accent's lovely, both of them, of course. Um, Here, though, the accents point out your origins. We've all known it historically. It is true here with Peter. Peter speaks and is immediately picked out as being a Galilean. And for those of you who don't know much about the geography of the area, that means a northerner. So we can mock him soundly for that. Um, That's where Jesus' followers all came from. They came from Galilee in the north. And so he gets his chance, doesn't he, as he said he would, to stand up for Jesus, to make his last stand. Even if all fall away, I will not, he says. And does he? Well, of course he does. He disowns Jesus just as he said he wouldn't. And exactly as Jesus said he would just a few hours earlier. Is he ready to die for Jesus? The answer is no. Peter, in this, is one of the best of us, isn't he? He's brave, he's determined, he's a passionate follower of the Christ. He's the first to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ. And yet when the trips are down, he chooses to deny Jesus rather than die for him. He's just like us, very, very imperfect. And in a sense, when Jesus is innocent but condemned, the imperfection in Peter shows that even though he is guilty, 
he escapes the condemnation that he is due. Peter stands for us, doesn't he? We're no better. If anything, we're, we're decidedly worse. You know, we'd claim to love Jesus. Many of us would express our desires to stand for him. Yet in truth, we are far from perfect. Can we stand as Jesus stood? No, of course not. All too often we fail the call. We choose our heart's desire rather than God's good and loving commands. Uh, we choose to sit back and cower rather than step forward bravely in faith. We're no better than Peter. If anything, we're worse. Um, Peter, like us, chose to save his own hide all too often. His response to this, though, his response is interesting, isn't it? What does he do? He breaks down and weeps at his failure. Well, we've done similar, haven't we? We have sidelined Jesus in our thinking, all of us, Christian or not. We've chosen ourselves over God in our choices. We've ignored Jesus in, our, in what we say. We've chosen anger and vitriol rather than to speak the truth in love. We've um, acted as if God has no claim on our lives. And if you're anything like me, that's just in the last few days. For many of us, we are so used to sinning against God we're so inured to it that we barely wince, far from Peter's breaking down and weeping. No, in Peter, we cannot look down on him. We must see ourselves here, guilty, yet somehow escaping the consequences we deserve as we ignore our Lord God and we deny his son's claim over our lives. Peter should be condemned but goes free. And how does this happen? Well, the third scene gives us the answer, Mark's answer. Look, at, look with me at the third scene, point three. That's verse, uh, chapter 15, 1 to 15. The innocent king is condemned so that the guilty can go free. The innocent king is condemned so that the guilty can go free. So in this third trial scene, uh, Mark strongly echoes um, the first scene, the first trial, but this time the stakes are higher because, of course, the Jewish leaders, the chief priests, the elders, teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin, as it was called, um, don't have the power to um, put Jesus to death. So they ship Jesus off in front of Pilate. Pilate is the Roman leader, you know, part of the Roman Empire, so he is the ultimate authority in the land. It was he who had the power to apply the death penalty. So now Jesus has gone from before the leaders of God's people to being before the leaders of the Gentiles. Okay? But the charge isn't blasphemy now here. Pilate wouldn't care much about that. Here the charge seems to be that Jesus is claiming to be the king of the Jews. It's, it's got a political dimension it's the charges which um, suggest that Jesus is threatening Caesar's authority. Caesar, the great worldly authority of day, head of the Roman Empire. Well, Pilate may be many things, but he's not gullible. He knows beyond doubt that Jesus is innocent, doesn't he? What does he, what does he look, well, look at verse 10? What does Pilate think? of the accusations, he knows they're purely self-interest. 
There's nothing to the charges. Mark also goes, he sees it in verse 14, doesn't he? So we see Pilate standing up. Mark shows Pilate standing up, trying to get Jesus off. The crowd called for Jesus to die. And what does Pilate say? Why? What crime has he committed? He knows there's no crime. He knows Jesus is innocent. So we have then Pilate uh, trying to get Jesus off. And he uses this tradition. They're at the festival for Passover. And there is a tradition where a prisoner is released at the request of the people. And he offers up a choice to the crowds. He tries to find a way to get Jesus off. And on the one hand, you have Jesus, the Son of God, clearly innocent, nothing wrong. And on the other hand, we have Barabbas, Barabbas, a name which, with Mark's customary use of irony, means son of the Father. So the Son of God on one hand, Son of the Father on the other hand. Innocent, clearly guilty. Barabbas is a murderer. He's an insurrectionist, a rebellion, he's leader of a rebellion. Today we'd call him a terrorist. And who did the crowd call to be freed? Well, in yet another stunning act of perversity, the crowd, who just days before this had been fating Jesus as their king, celebrating his every word in the temple. Suddenly, they're baying for Jesus' blood, for him to be killed in the most painful and cruel form of death devised. Barabbas, they want freed. And so we're seeing really here an exchange, the greatest of exchange, the great exchange. This is not a VC winner brave indeed amongst men, putting themselves in harm's way to save others like them. No, this is more, because this is the innocent son of God. This is the king. This is the one God has sent to lead and rule the whole of creation. And he is the one going to meet a death he doesn't deserve, while the guilty criminal, son of the father, is freed. As I remember someone once describing it many years ago, an exchange that gives life to the life taker and takes life from the great life giver. No one is spared in their role putting him on the cross. You've got the corrupt elites, haven't you, in Jewish society. You've got the capricious crowds. We've even got Pilate, the weak, false judge who allows the greatest of wrongs. They're all complicit in this injustice as the innocent king is sent to a cruel death. And Mark wants us to feel a sense of responsibility. Everyone participated in Jesus going to death and he wants us to be in no doubt that if we had been there, we would have been amongst them, baying for his death, not putting himself between us, uh, between him rather and death, as Peter had claimed that he would, not doing that. No, we would have been there needing him to die. There is not one of us that is not represented there in those that found Jesus guilty, that put Jesus on the cross. They are our type, if you like. But then there's not one of us 
who is Christian, who doesn't rely on him having gone to that death. This is no minor monarch. This is God's king. He will stand in judgment on God's enemies. That's what um, Daniel 7 and Psalm 110 assure us. The supreme judge and king is allowing himself to be judged by crooked judges and false rulers. Why? Well, for us, for you and for me. And it is that great beauty of the Christian message to a humanity that is so broken and hopeless. We are so like Peter, aren't we, with the best of intentions and yet so often falling short. I think we are often keen to do the good and yet even the best of us know in ourselves how far short we fall, always falling at that last hurdle in our willingness to stand up and do and say and think what is right. Well, it's for us that Jesus performed this grace exchange. It is for fallen, broken people like us that Jesus stepped in our place to take the punishment that we deserve, taking on that terrible dehumanizing punishment that we deserve, willingly sacrificing his life for us. Um, today is one of the most solemn days in our year, isn't it, as we think about those who died in wars over the years. We commemorate those who went to the bloody trenches of the First World War. Um, we think about the dead and injured on many wars since. War is a horrible, dehumanising business where people learn to not view the enemy as humans, but to be dehumanised, to see them indiscriminately as targets. And the victims then are not just those that die, uh, but those who survive. <coughs> There's the terrible sacrifice of the armed forces in these wars. Scarred, physically disfigured, um, disabled, mind-scarred with um, post-traumatic stress disorders or shell shock as it used to be called. There's an element to this remembrance only where we remember the sacrifice um, that people gave so that we might live the lives that we do live. As horrible as war is, as much as it brings out the worst, as we see it as this image of how humans can be dehumanised, we are just as capable, aren't we? We're just as capable of scarring ourselves and those around us as we live our lives. The way we treat each other, the way we speak to each other, the way we think and the things that we think about. We pollute our lives and our minds with the same self-interest and greed of those rulers in Jesus' day. We, like Peter, do not do the good we wish we could do. Christianity shows as a core truth that there is a capacity that lurks not far beneath the surface of each and every human being and leaves us scarred and broken spiritually, facing nothing but a right judgment before Christ, the one who comes in power and who sits on the throne ready to judge the living 
and the dead. I need this death of Jesus for me. I need this rescue from the dysfunctional, sin-scarred nature of my life. And we all do. Here is the answer to why Jesus suffered. Why did God cause the strange um, situation where God's judge was judged by others, unjustly so? Why did God choose his shepherd to be struck? Why did God put Jesus through death so that I do not have to go through the full price of my sin? In some ways, we'll never understand it. But by goodness, we must be grateful for it. It is for us that he did these things. Well, in conclusion, um, we've seen in Jesus that this innocent Messiah and is, is worthy to die. He takes a stand as God's shepherd and he is struck as God said he must be. He stands to pay that price for us, to be the ransom. We see in Peter that for all his brave words and his really quite brave actions, he's not the shepherd. He cannot be that shepherd. He cannot act as the saviour. Only Jesus can do that. And finally, we see with Barabbas. Jesus is the king struck to take the place of guilty men and women, even as bad as Barabbas, women, men and women such as Peter, such as you and I. And it's just as Isaiah said it would be all those years before. It's not fair. It really isn't fair, but by goodness, it's beautiful isn't it? We love the idea of the world being fair, don't we? But, you know, we, we weep at injustice. It upsets us. We feel, especially when we feel powerless to stop it. But the gospel is not fair either. If it was fair, Jesus, the innocent, would never have been condemned. If it was fair, each of us would face a righteous judgment before God. No, we need to learn from the great exchange to embrace the unfairness of life with gratitude, to remember in every moment when we feel victims to some sort of great cosmic unfairness that God himself has faced the full brunt of that unfairness and more. His son was horribly betrayed, falsely condemned, cruelly beaten, dying a terrible death on the cross in the place of us who could never deserve it. I don't want to lessen our rejection of unfairness and hatred of it. Perhaps we need to learn to redeem it somehow, to look more closely to our king when we experience it. And rather than letting it cause us to question God, perhaps we need to use it to remember what he has done for us, embracing the path he himself walked. Well, perhaps a final thought for those of us who might not have wholeheartedly committed ourselves to God yet. Um, 
let's return to that question in verse 12 of chapter 15. What shall I do then, Pilate asked, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Will we join with Mark? Will we acknowledge Jesus as our king, our saviour, the one who stepped in front of the punishment we deserve? Or will we join with the high priests and false leaders of Jesus' day and say that surely, surely it was wrong, if they're right, for Jesus to claim such a title? There is a choice to be made. There's no middle way. If Christianity is of not true, Jesus is false, his claims are lie, and it is of no importance at all. But if Jesus' claims are true, as I believe with all my heart, the only thing that we can say is it's of infinite importance. There's no middle way. For some of us, we need to stop prevaricating and we need to turn to Christ for the salvation which cost him so much. Perhaps we should pray.